Well, it's a privilege to be here this morning. And Tom has been instructing me on how to speak loudly. I have kind of a thin voice compared to Larry, you know. Lord just didn't bestow me with one. Maybe if I was wise enough, I'd sing really loudly in the car year after year and it would develop or something. But anyway, so if you're in the back and don't hear very well, just hold your hand up to your ear and I'll do my best to pace the voice to the end of the week, see if it makes it till Saturday. And uh, we'll trust the Lord for that. It's a real privilege to be here with Larry this morning. He made mention of Jacksonville, Florida. And it's been a long time ago, Larry, but one of the few times ever that I remember early on uh, speaking, I think it was Larry or someone there that was kind enough to invite me up. I was living in Orlando at the time and came up to uh, Jacksonville. I don't know how many years ago, Larry, but a lot of years ago. And it was a privilege at that time to meet Larry and Wanda and some of their family, if they were even born then, Larry, now they're married, right? But um, anyway, it's a privilege, my privilege to be here. Uh, with Larry this morning. All right, let's turn to Matthew 28. And I just am so thankful to be here apart from, I think, our everyday busyness, aren't you? Uh, It's nice to get in the car. My wife and I so enjoyed two days traveling, no cell phones, no office, just travel and read and enjoy one another. And I don't know about your life, but I have a really hard time doing two things at once. I prefer three to five, right? Sometimes you have to just sort of fall back on two and compromise, but that's the way our lives are. They're just so busy. But we had the opportunity this week to sit back, to enjoy one another, to do one thing, to appreciate the Lord, appreciate His Word, enjoy as believers and as saints and the fellowship that we have with them and just appreciate the time the Lord's given to us. And I'm so thankful for it. And I trust that you are as well. And I don't know how we're going to get our lives to go from the the frantic and the chaotic just to the frenzied, right? If we could just move down that level, we'd be happy. But thank the Lord for this time together. So let's just turn to Matthew chapter 28. And we're going to do what we spoke about last night. And that is to go ahead and take the time to read this chapter together. And I know it's not an easy thing to wipe the slate clean, but we do our best to come at a new passage of Scripture as if it were new and not something that we've read many times before. And Larry did such a nice job with that back in Genesis, just taking a look at the commencement of the lives of two men and literally what the Scripture says or what the Holy Spirit says regarding them. And we're going to try to do the same thing. I ran across a friend just recently, I think my wife mentioned this, but her name is Jan, and she said, I have a new Bible every year. She said, I don't necessarily need to know what the Lord said to me last year. Yes, I hope I've learned that, but what I need now is what the Lord's going to tell me this year. And I have the Bible that I've had for I don't know how many years, and it doesn't have enough notes in it yet. But that's a good thought, isn't it? To just come at it again as the Spirit would have us to, as we long for Him to teach us in it. So here we are in Matthew chapter 28, and let's go ahead and read this together. And I'm reading from the Old King James. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven... 
and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. Now, maybe the earthquake couldn't even move the stone. It was that big. Maybe it was the result of the angels coming, but there was a tremendous earthquake. The stone was rolled back. Verse 3, his countenance was like lightning and his raiment as white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. We were reading this and thinking of what a wonderful thing it is. This simple fact. The Lord always goes before us. And he's invited them now to come to Galilee. And it says that he went before them, just as he said. And look at verse 8. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy and did run to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Let me read that phrase one more time, because you do know some of the scriptures that we're going to read. In fact, in the Gospel of John, there's a woman that comes to the Lord. And what does she what does he say to her? Touch me not. But look what Matthew says. And they came and held him by the feet, it says, and worshiped him. Then said Jesus unto them, be not afraid Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave a large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while he slept. And if this come to the governor's ear, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And you can add your amen to that as well. Now, for those of you that were here last night, just a bit of review again. And for those that are new this morning, we're going to be taking a look at these little passages of Scripture that are literally the words of the Lord Jesus between the time that he was crucified and risen and then that he was ascended into heaven. 
Now, there are passages in Scripture that seem to, maybe it's just because of the circumstance that we're in or the lives that we live, but they stand out to us, right? I mean, every jot and tittle has been inspired by the Lord and is profitable. We know that, every speck of it. The Lord didn't just add a bunch to it to make the Bible this big and, you know, padded enough to have enough pages to be a bestseller. Every word is in there as proper and as just right as the Lord would have it. But still, there are certain passages that oftentimes come to our attention as being almost like a zenith passage or a passage that just right floats to the top, you know. And I think of a couple that, in fact, it's a fun study to do. John has some statements like that. Paul has statements like that. Peter has statements like that. Sometimes they start with a phrase like this, above all things. And then he goes on and tells us something, right? There was a man that came to the Lord Jesus one day. And he is, in essence, asked, why don't you take all of the law and the prophets and just sort of summarize it all in a short sentence? And the Lord does it, doesn't he? He says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, and thy neighbor as thyself. There's an interesting little verse, and this isn't really neither here nor there, but it comes to mind in 3 John, John 3's epistle. This is one of John's, if we want to call it that, zenith statements. And it has to do with an interesting thing. It has to do with our personal joy. Look at first, or John, 3 John. Again, the first chapter or the only chapter and verse four, John says this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. The ultimate in his joy wasn't even necessarily his personal salvation, was it? But it was to hear and to experience that his spiritual children or his physical children Maybe some of you and I could say the same thing with our children. We will have no greater joy than to invest our time and ourselves in them and to see them going on for the Lord. Here's a fabulous statement that John makes. And these statements that we're going to be taking up here are much like that. These are statements where the Lord Jesus has a small amount of time with his people. And he's going to give the bodily proof that he has risen And that that glorified body is a very special body. We'll look at it a little bit later. Scripture gives us some idea of what it's like and what our glorified body is consequently going to be like as well. But these statements where he takes his own disciples, he calls them to meet him in a specific place just before he's going to go on into glory and be received in the presence of the Father. He gives to his disciples At the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the beginning of Acts. Some tremendous things for us to read. Now let's just go back because we're going to read a few shorter verses now at the end of this Matthew 28 again. Because really we find this time or these statements at the very end of this chapter. Verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, it says. They were obedient. And they go into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And verse 17 says, and when they saw him. Now, what was their response? Two responses, weren't there? There wasn't just one. There were two. 
And Larry's been talking to us on the difference between that which is earthly and and sensual and fleshly and, and temporal and immediate versus that which is spiritual and heavenly and eternal and that lasts forever and, and that which is the Lord's and that which is man's. And right here we have such a hinge verse at the beginning of this specific chapter in the beginning of our study because we find a simple response is rendered by Well, it says here the 11. Now, you can read your expositors and they'll say, well, it couldn't have been the 11 because, I mean, they should have known by this time. This wasn't the first time that they saw him, actually. And and some shouldn't have hesitated or or doubted. They should have all fallen down and worshipped. It must have been the others that were with them. Well, that could possibly be true, but it says that the 11 disciples went away into Galilee. Now, maybe there were others with them. But they went to the place where the Lord had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But there were those there that doubted or that hesitated. What are we going to do, brother and sister, when we come face to face with the Lord? Or face to face with an experience in our life? Is it going to be doubt, hesitation, or is it going to be implicit, immediate trust? Is it going to be worship, or is it going to be hesitation? Now, these two words here, and I took just a very short time to look at some definitions, but the word for worship is the common word that we read throughout the New Testament. And I hesitate to say common because it takes such an uncommon faith in the Lord and love for the Lord. But it's that word to kiss towards, to have a tremendous reverence and appreciation for. And this little word doubted is, it's only used twice in the New Testament, both by Matthew. The other rendering is in Matthew chapter 14, and you'll know the circumstance. It has to do with Peter. And Peter's attempting to walk on the water. And this statement is made of Peter. O thou of little faith, it says, wherefore didst thou doubt? And here we have these people that come to the Lord. Little of faith like Peter. And their response is to doubt the Lord. Are we going to take our own human reasoning or our human experience and place it up against the eternal God of the ages and what he says? You remember Peter, right? He did that at one point in time. Though all the rest forsake you, Lord, I will never forsake you. Are we going to take our own expectations and our own experience and our own thoughts and put it up against what the Lord says? And you and I can sit here today and say, Lord, we would never do that. But then we recognize we're just like Peter, are we not? So some worshipped and some, it says, doubted. Some wavered, some hung in suspense. They, They didn't have that full assurance of faith. That's the opposite, isn't it? That Hebrews chapter 10 talks about. That full assurance. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now the word of God is living and powerful. And somehow, I don't know why, but it's hard for us to get it through our ears and into our mind and through our heart and into our hands, isn't it? To where the action actually comes out. And it's so easy for us, like Peter, to say one thing and to do sometimes the opposite thing, to do something totally different. 
You can imagine our little daughter saying, you know, I love you, mom and dad, and I love to hear your voice, and I love everything about you, and I love that you supply for me, and I love that you clothe me, and I love that you put a bit of a roof over my head. And then we ask her to do something, and what does she do? And she says, well, I love the way you said that, but I'm not going to do it, right? Because our, our lives just don't always correlate with the way that we think we believe or the way that we should believe. And we think of, there's many different scriptures, I suppose, that we could go to along this line. Because we can't always get the two just together, can we? But I think of this one verse, ye shall worship. This is one that Matthew gives here that I jotted down. Ye shall worship the Lord your God, says the Lord Jesus, and him only shalt thou serve. Because these two things go together. If we worship the Lord, we serve him. If we worship him, we don't hesitate. And it's these that are going to be ready to listen to what the Lord has. These disciples are those of us that are sitting here that are willing to just say, Lord, we believe you, right? Can you say that you have received the Lord Jesus by faith and you are one of his and then go about in the next breath and say, but I don't really want to go to meeting on Sunday morning. But I don't really want to be baptized. But I don't really want to spend any time with him in the word of God. See, they don't fit, do they? And so some are going to worship and long to not waver. Some are going to hesitate. So let's just say that this, that our faith bears itself out in action, doesn't it? Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this verse 17 because we want to get into our passage. But I would like to give just simple, some simple scriptural examples and as I was thinking of Larry speaking here this morning back in Genesis, think of some of these examples. Remember that Abraham was a man of faith, right? His wife was a woman of faith. I'd like you to draw your minds to one circumstance that you'll remember in the Old Testament. Do you have faith in God or not? Did Sarah have faith in God or not? Sarah and Abraham are traveling one day. The king of this foreign nation comes, looks upon his wife. She's a beautiful woman. And she takes him or takes her and brings her into his own harem. Now, you and I say, Abraham, you're an amazing man of faith. And we speak very highly of him. Now, if you were to go up to Sarah at that point in time and say, what do you think about your husband? What would she have said? See, we have these thoughts concerning these people, don't we? And Sarah would have said, this is my husband, and he left me in a moment of need. He didn't stand up for anything at all, and he let me go to a foreign evil king, and he's turned his back on me, and he's left me. You see, Sarah would have had a different idea at that point in time of Abraham's character. Now, what are you going to do? Here's a man and a woman. They've been married and they've done so by faith in the Lord. They followed his example. And Sarah, it says in the New Testament, and it's in this situation, don't ask me how. This is a woman of faith. Called him what? Calls her husband whom? Lord, right? That's a small L. But she, how could she do that? 
You see, God has designed marriage to be one man, one woman for life, right? And Sarah knew that. And Sarah said, if this is God's design, if I can't trust my husband, who can I trust? Well, I have one more person to fall back on, and he's a, he's a heavyweight, isn't he? And so, Lord, I'm going to place my faith in you. And if you design marriage, and if this is the way you would like to see it done, then I'm going to stand for you, Lord. And if Abraham has failed, I'm going to stand And say, Lord, you take it to task. And the Lord did, didn't he? The Lord took care of the situation. And it changed Sarah in many ways. And it changed Abraham tremendously. Read your Genesis, right? From this point on, there are some appreciable changes in this man's life. And Sarah said, I'm going to take him at his word. I'm going to trust him. And I'm going to follow him. Look at Job, right? He loses his family in a day, loses his wealth in a day. His wife is no help at all. And he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. What do you do, brother and sister and young person, when your family fails you? And your father and your mother are not exactly what they ought to be. And they fail you. What do you do, husband and wife, when... Your spouse fails you because they will, won't they? What do you do when you walk into a local assembly of believers and there's a bunch of sinners in there and they fail you? What do you do then? And all you can do is place your trust implicitly in the Lord himself and not hesitate and not waver because this is the Lord's plan, isn't it? Larry made reference to James being the Jacob of the New Testament, the English name for Jacob. And James in chapter 2 at the end of that chapter brings these two or one of the men that we've already talked about, the other is a woman before our attention. And he says, these are people of great faith and of great love for the Lord. And one of them is Abraham, right? Who's the other? Rahab, exactly. Rahab, isn't it? And we have Abraham the hero, and then you think, man, it's got to be like Rahab the hero or something, but it's not, is it? It's Rahab the harlot. And these two lives, study them sometime, contrast them. They are absolutely different. Abraham from a privileged family, wealthy, one of the wealthiest men, perhaps, of the ancient world. A man who followed the Lord, and the Lord was with him. And then we have this woman who's in a horrendous place, a sinful city in a sinful job, completely different. One is a Jew, the Lord's chosen people. The other is a Gentile of Gentiles. But they were absolutely alike in one thing, and that was this, their love and their faith in the Lord. And here's this Rahab, and she said, I'm going to turn my back on this world, and I'm going to turn my back from idols, and I'm going to trust the living God. I'm going to trust him. And so we have these people here, these men that are coming to the Lord and the Lord calls them to a specific place. And like you and me, maybe we can be obedient to a point, but then we come face to face with the Lord. How are we going to react in every situation? Is it in a way that speaks to the world that we trust the Lord or that we don't? See, that's what's different, isn't it, about the believer? from the unbeliever 
when they're in a marriage, they say, this is one man, one woman for life, and come what may, we are not going to leave. We're not going to turn our back on it. We're not going to satisfy our own selfishness and fleshly desires. We're going to trust the Lord. And the world looks at that and they say, that is different. And when we're in a local assembly and struggles happen, we don't just say, oh, man, forget this. We're going to go down the street. That's easy. We can walk in there and nobody will know us. And we don't have to deal with what's in our our past. That's easy. But when the world sees someone that in a family or in a marriage or in a local church is willing to, to gut it out with the Lord's help, right? That is a testimony for the Lord. And so here we have these men that are coming before the Lord, and they say, some worship, some doubt it. But Jesus comes, it says, and he spake unto them. And now we have what we might say the literal words of this commission or of this charge. And as you have opportunity to read through these chapters, if the Lord gives you such, just remember that this is kind of a backbone for our study and that Each of these different times, because they are different occasions, maybe one or two of them are the same, but they're different occasions. And and as we read, you might have noticed, now wait, why is it that here it says that they held him by the feet, but the Lord says in John to that woman, don't touch me. The Bible doesn't disagree with itself, does it? It is absolutely perfect in every situation. We just have to work it out, don't we? And that's the fun of it sometimes is to get through it and say, why does it start here in in Matthew, as an example, in a mountain? But in John, they're not in a mountain, are they? They're still in Galilee, but they're at the seashore. Well, obviously, it's two different circumstances. and, And one writer is bringing one before our attention, and another writer is bringing another before our attention. Or maybe it's the same circumstance, but one recollects these things because they touched his heart intimately. And and the other, it's, it's something different that is on his mind or in the progress of his writing. But Jesus came, it says in verse 18, and he spake unto them, saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And if you do have that outline, you're welcome to add it to the the notebook that we've been so kindly handed, and maybe it will be of some help. The opposite side of that outline on the other side of the eight and a half by 11 sheet may be of more help. So you can turn it over and just scroll on that other side, all right? But it might give us a little bit of a direction. And we're going to say that, first of all, we come to this, the priority in our life of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who's always first. We come to the Lord. And it's the Lord Jesus that is saying and speaking, all power is given unto me. It's, it's him to whom we react, and it's him that we love the priority of the person of the Lord. Now, last year, I think I, I gave attention to this simple story, and it's just this again. I'll kind of render it to you, but our lives rotate around the Lord and are focused upon the Lord Jesus. It's one reason that we came together last night and we spent time together at what we call the Lord's Supper. You might have read in 1 Corinthians 11 those little phrases, the Lord's body that's been given, right? The Lord's death that we're coming to remember. The the Lord's supper that we come to spend time together in. And at the first day of every week, the Lord draws our attention to Him. 
and praise the Lord for that. But last year, we made mention of this simple little story that years ago, men used to think that the earth was the center of the solar system, right? And everything revolved around them. It goes right back to what Larry was saying. Very convenient that the world is the center. We're the center of everything. And all the planets and the sun and everything revolves around us. But the mathematics didn't work out, right? And the science didn't work out. And it's because it was wrong. Because it wasn't a geocentric system, it was a heliocentric system. It all rotated around the sun. And in our lives, it's not in this case the S-U-N, but the S-O-N, our lives revolve around the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's first, is he not? And that's why in scripture we find simple little things like this. A man by the name of Cortus, number four, man by the name of Tertius, number three, and a man by the name of Secundus, number two. But we all know who number one is. There's no primus, but there is the preeminent one, Colossians 1.18. The Lord Jesus is the center of our life. How are we going to react? And so we move on from there and we might say, well, okay, Lord, we, we desire at least to listen and we desire to be obedient. And we desire not to doubt anymore. We desire to follow you. And he makes this statement then, if you're looking at your outline, the the preeminence of his power, the statement of power that he gives. And it's a, a word which is most often in our New Testament rendered power. It's oftentimes rendered authority. The Lord Jesus has all power, all authority in all things at all times. And he commences with this statement. All power has been given unto me. The sole universal monarch. And he's the one that loved us and gave himself for us. The one who has all power, all authority. One person once said, God can do anything but fail in a chorus that you often sing. God can do anything. My faith has no bed to sleep upon, but omnipotence, says Samuel Rutherford. It's comforting to know that our God has all power and all authority. And so he says again, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Now, does that make you think just a little bit why it is that he is going to select you and me those disciples at that time as those to carry on with his testimony from a visual sense realize this that this doesn't really make any sense it says i have all the power and then in the next verse he says go you i have all the authority go you back up a few years now to when the lord jesus was on the earth He's about 30 years when he breaks out into public ministry. But at 12, he was confounding the wise men of that nation. Why did the Lord waste, in our mind, 18 years of the life of the Lord Jesus on this earth when he could have been out there preaching and teaching and doing miracles and doing phenomenal things? It wasn't in the Lord's mind, was it? And he does things perfectly. Why is it that he has in mind that he's going to send us 
but he's the one with all the power and all the authority. Well, if you read to the end of the story, in the end of Matthew 28, there's going to be a lovely statement there because we don't go out by ourselves, do we? The Lord Jesus is the one who is the minister. The Lord Jesus is the one who is the servant. And we go out merely to be with him, to join him in the work. We have just a moment to, to make mention of this because I would like to ask this question at the beginning of our study also. What is the ultimate expression of all power? If the Lord Jesus has all the power and all the authority, what does he do with it? The Lord Jesus is on this, on this earth, this literal earth. He walked with two very human feet in this world. And how did he give forth the expression of having all power and all authority? Well, we could go to many different places in our Bible. Let's turn to just a couple. In John chapter 3, at the very end of that chapter, a very famous chapter. This is one of the times, and there are many times in our New Testament where we read such statements that the Lord Jesus has all power or has been given all things. How does he express it? Look at verse 35 of John chapter 3. The Father loveth the Son... And hath given all things into his hand. Here's another one of these big expressions. All things have been given into the hand of the Lord Jesus. And then it goes on to speak about our salvation. It says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. What is the foundation of our salvation? It's the humble servant work of the Lord Jesus in giving his life at the cross of Calvary. Look at John chapter 13. This is another time when we read a, a glowing major statement regarding the power of the Lord Jesus. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and that he went to God Notice how he's going to express it. Jesus, knowing this, he rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself, and after that he had poured water into a basin, he began to wash the disciples' feet. All power has been given unto the Lord in John chapter 3. And he becomes the humble servant of Calvary and the humble servant of at the well of Samaria in John chapter 4, if we were to read on. And he sits down beside a well with one woman, and he serves her, and he ministers unto her. And in John chapter 13, the statement is made that he has all power. And now he's the humble servant at the feet of the disciples. And you know this, brother and sister, he washed the feet of Peter, yes. That's in the story. But he washed the feet of Judas as well. Let that cross your mind and your heart just a little bit because it will touch our hearts, doesn't it? And the Lord Jesus, in his economy, in God's economy, the expression of all power is seen in one who ministers. I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. You know that four times over in our New Testament, 
And it could have been the worst problem that the disciples had. We know it's our worst problem. Read Proverbs chapter 30 sometime and other places like that. Our terrible pride. And four times over the disciples or the apostles are arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And who's going to serve me. And when we look in our own mind. And in our own hearts. and our own human expression as Larry's been talking to us about. Esau versus what Jacob is going to become. We say, you know what all power does? All power says, you go and do that for me. And I have enough money to do whatever I want. And money is liberty and power is liberty. And we call and they come and we beck and they come. That's our idea, isn't it? But it's not God's idea. The Lord Jesus' idea of all power and all authority is humble service and love and care and ministry for others. He that is greatest among you, says Scripture, is what? Is he that serves. And so we come in our priority to the Lord Jesus, the servant of Calvary and the servant of the Father. And he is going to express his power because he has it all. And one day we're going to find that out as he reigns from horizon to horizon on the king of the universe. And oh, how he deserves it as the king of the universe on the throne. But he's the minister who loves to serve this one with all authority. All power, it says, is given unto me. He has all the power for all the days. But we made note of this, that as he's going to lay out before us this plan for the gospel and the goodness of the Lord Jesus to just overflow throughout the world, that's what's going to happen in the book of Acts, right? His his grace is so amazing that... It's just going to overflow and it's going to the uttermost parts of the world. But in this propagation, in this plan that he has, he says these simple words at the beginning of verse 19. Go ye therefore. Go ye. It's not just an expression of compulsion, of demand, of command. But as we begin to see the Lord Jesus and who he is, it becomes one of much different, frankly. We fall in love with him and we can't help but obey him, right? And instead of must I, it's it's may I, Lord. May I join you in your service. And he says, go ye, therefore. Now, just for a real quick moment, let's take a little look at that word ye. It, It certainly had to do with those individuals then, but... If we want to be practical about it this morning as well, we've already spoken about our heart's attitude when we confront the Lord face to face. Will it be one of investment in whatever he has, worship for the Lord, or one of hesitation? But now it's going to be those of us that have been saved by grace, sinners saved by grace that are going to be called upon to go out and to share. And we're not going to talk so much this this week about missions per se as we think of them on the foreign field the lord gives each one of us our little garden to tend and that's where he wants us to tend right that's where he wants us to to show our priority where he wants us to spend our time believe you me we all know that if the lord wants to grow that garden a little bit he'll pull you out and put you somewhere else right but he that's faithful in that which is least is going to be faithful in that which is much but he says go Ye therefore. 
Now, back in chapter 26, the Lord makes an interesting statement because he says, I could have called. It's in the circumstance with Peter and Malchus and the high priest servant. Peter takes off his ear, right, with a sword. You do, you do know that story. We don't want to make assumptions, but most of you will know that story. Peter, being impetuous and wanting to stand for the Lord, pulls out a sword, takes off the high priest's ear. And the Lord says to him or to those around that are hearing, Do you not know that I could have called 12 legions of angels to do my bidding? This is the one with all power, right? But he didn't choose 12 legions of angels to do his bidding in this case. Who did he choose? 12 men, 12 disciples. One of them that he chose, remember in John chapter 17, five times over, he says, the men whom thou hast given me, he says of the Father, the men whom thou hast given me. He could have called 12,000 angels. There's a song, a hymn that goes like that. But he stood alone. When it came to our crucifixion, when it came to the crucifixion and our salvation, the Lord Jesus was the only one that could do it. When it comes to the propagation of that salvation, he could have called 12,000 angels or 12 legions, but he didn't. He called 12 men. One of them was a traitor. Five times over, the men whom thou hast given me, says of his father. One of them was a traitor. Now be careful your definition of the word for choose, right? Eight of them were very close to the Lord, but they weren't as close as how many others? Well, eight plus one is nine. You'll get that. Three others in many different circumstances, and you may be able to go through them, were called to come a little bit further and to be a little bit closer. The Lord Jesus had preferences, didn't he? And when it came to the propagation of his salvation, he did not prefer 12 legions of angels. He did not prefer to stay here on the earth and do it himself. He went back into glory, though we know whatever transpires, it is by his grace and through his strength, because we're working with him. But he chose men. That was his preference for propagating salvation. The Lord Jesus had preferences. Provincial preferences. Read your New Testament, right? Where, where would he rather be? Samaria, Judea, or Galilee? Well, read the Gospels. You'll find out pretty readily where he'd rather be. He had preferences in homes, in places, didn't he? There was one home that it says he loved to resort there. I'm sure thousands of other homes he could have chosen to go and to be with. There were persons that he had preferences in. No favorites, perhaps, but he did have intimates. That's how the phrase goes. Maybe no favorites. He's willing to prefer any. But he prefers those who prefer him. I believe that's true. Those that love him, those that worship him, they that seek him shall surely find him. The Lord does have preferences in that respect, doesn't he? All stand level at the foot of the cross. But the Lord loves those who love Him. And He gives to those who give for Him.
and he prefers those who prefer him. Well, for some reason, brother and sister, he has chosen sinners saved by grace to propagate that plan of salvation. Let's just read through the end of the chapter because our time is gone. One more time. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world or unto the end of the age, all the days he's going to be with us. Amen, it says. Let's just pray. Our Heavenly Father, our request this morning is that you would humble us before thyself and that you would cause us to see that our own desires, our own understanding is not something to be leaned on, but in all our ways to trust the Lord. Our Father, we desire to have an implicit trust in thee alone to be always looking at the Lord Jesus, thy Son, who is the perfect expression of the Godhead, to be keeping our focus upon Him and our trust in Him and our faith in Him, and to not doubt and to not hesitate, but to always be able to say, as Thomas did, my Lord and my God. And our Father, whatever you have for us, whatever it may be today, Any opportunity that you may give to speak to a family member or to someone along the path as we walk or to encourage a brother or sister in the Lord, whatever has been placed at our hand, that we might do it, that we might do it by thy strength and by thy grace and for thy glory. Father, our faith is in thee. Our trust is in thee. Our trust is in the one who has all the power. And our Father, we respectfully say as well, What an amazing thing it is that you have asked of us to join the Lord Jesus in the propagation of salvation's wonderful plan, the good news. And we truly do ask this day that we would not merely be witnessing, but as we're going to read later, that we would be witnesses, that just our life itself, our words themselves, our actions themselves would be a shining testimony in this fast darkening world for thyself, and for thy glory. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name, in his worthy name. Amen.